Wonderful singing this morning. I wish you guys could hear what I hear up here. It's just uh, wonderful to hear all of your voices lifted together. And the Lord, I can tell you one thing we will never have at Calvary Baptist Church is one of these big rock bands that overpower the congregation so that all you hear is the music and the people in front of you and not the people around you. Um, We are singing to one another admonishing and instructing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Amen? Amen. And uh, we want to hear one another sing, and we don't care how bad you sing, by the way. We just want to hear your voice. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Isaiah chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever bought something or done something that you thought was going to be like the best thing ever? that you thought was really gonna make life easier or you thought was gonna make life better and then come to find out when all is said and done, it ended up being a disaster. You ever done that? When, uh, when, we were, when I was pastoring in Colorado Springs, I've told some of you this story before, but uh, one of the deacons there, he saw that our cars were kind of rather old and, and he wanted to bless us and he said, hey, I just want you to know, I have a car that I want to give you. And we thought, well, okay, you know, I was driving an 86 Honda. It was, it was uh, a good car, uh, and it got me everywhere I needed to go, but it didn't look very good, and so maybe the time was, uh, it was time to, to switch. And so he showed up with his car one Sunday morning, and guys, it was a Cadillac Katerra. And I called Roxanne, I said, he's giving us a caddy. We have made it. We are a caddy-driving, preaching family now. And guys, we took it out. It was so, it had leather interior. It had a Bose sound system. It, I mean, it was decked out with all the goodies. Everything in there was was electric, which up until that time, we had never had a car like that. And so, and I mean, guys, we took it out that night driving around Colorado Springs and I was literally driving going, rolling with the homies, you know? <laughs> and uh, I mean, we were macking, let me tell you. And the one thing he said was, now, one thing you do need to know is it needs an oil change and the only real place you can do it in town is the Cadillac dealership. It's a little more expensive, but they have all the right tools. They can get it done. It's like, okay, so, so my first clue that something was wrong was when I took this car to that dealer for the oil change and he looked at what car he was, he went, oh. And I was like, okay, I thought that was kind of weird. But then he brought out a service file on this car that guys, I kid you not, was about that thick. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I see that my brother has taken really good care of it, so that's good. Guys, that car was a total lemon. And I averaged it out one time, about every six months that car was breaking down. It actually left us stranded in Oklahoma one time and that was just horrible, let me tell you. I mean, why not strand us in Hawaii or something? Oklahoma, for real, you know? And so, so anyway, and after a year, and you know, Cadillac don't do nothing cheap, right? And so by, the, by about a year had gone by and I figured out this car is literally breaking us as much as it's breaking itself. And one of the meetings with the elders one night, I said, guys, I need, I need you guys to pray because we cannot afford to keep this car. 
And, and, I, and the deacon was, was very gracious and he did accept it back. And I thank the Lord for that. But has something like that ever happened to you guys? Where you thought something was gonna be like the best and then once it actually came to it, it ended up being a total disaster. Well, that is something like what we're gonna see in the text this morning, what happens in the life of the king of Judah, Ahaz, and this sign of Emmanuel, that is the prophecy, that, that is the context in which this sign of Emmanuel comes into being. And so I wanna read this text this morning, and I would ask you one more time to stand in reverence to the reading of the word. And we're gonna read this together, just three verses this morning together, beginning in verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This is the reading of the word of God. This morning, you may be seated. And so last week, we were looking at Jesus's birth and we were looking at how Matthew said that Jesus's birth fulfills this sign. And, um, and five times in the first two chapters of Matthew, he's gonna do this. He's, he's gonna look at an event in Jesus's childhood and he's gonna match that up with a scripture from the Old Testament and he's gonna say, this is in fulfillment of what the prophet said. And we're not gonna do this every time with every one of those fulfillments. But since this is the first one, I thought it might be good, and especially when I mentioned it, several of you said, yes, please do this. And and so I thought it might be good to kind of go back and look at this sign and show you how this sign is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of reasons why I want to do this. Number one, because this is probably the most important sign that deals with Jesus's birth. And it's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it is the very first sign that Matthew points to in his gospel. The very first sign. And as they say, if he can be disproved on the first page, then why would you listen to the rest of his gospel? And so I think it's important to see that Matthew is using this prophecy properly. And that really gets into the second point because not so much in churches today, but uh, certain churches probably, but if you're watching the Discovery Channel or you're watching something like that, what they're going to say is that Matthew is making up a story about Jesus and then he finds a random verse in scripture and he points to this and he pulls it out of its context in order so that he can say that this is a prophecy that is fulfilled by Jesus. And the vast majority of scholars today will say that Matthew is misusing this verse. And so I think it's important for us to see that that is not the case. That is not the case. But third of all, and this is more pastoral, is that I've grown concerned lately for, for myself, but also for us and for Christians in general, to see the connective tissue between the Old Testament and the New Testament, to see that it truly is one story. In all of its wonderful diversity, there is a divine unity in the Bible, and that unity is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the story. 
Jesus is the hero of every story. Not David, not Daniel, not Abraham, not any of those guys. Jesus is always the hero. And he is the one whom the whole story is about. And many attack this claim today. I've grown concerned to help you see that connective tissue. And so what we wanna do is we wanna put a little bones and put a little muscles on the tissue this morning so that you will have a strong scriptural affirmation that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, but specifically see here, he is the fulfillment of the sign of Emmanuel. And so... We're gonna look at this in a few different places, a few different ways, and we're just gonna look at it. The crisis in Judah, the call to faith, the consequences of unbelief, and then we're gonna see the coming of Christ as we come toward the end. And so that's what all we're gonna look at this morning. So beginning in chapter seven, verse one, let's look at the crisis in Judah the crisis of Judah. And one, it says that in the days of Ahaz, the king of Judah, basically, I'm not gonna read all the verses, but there are two nations that are coming up against Judah in order to make war with them. You know, I've been told that for every person in life, they're in one of three places. They're either uh, in a crisis, they're coming out of a crisis, or they're walking into a crisis. And what we're gonna see is that that is what's happening in the life of Ahaz. That's what's happening in the life of the nation of Judah. Jesus in Luke 17, one, he says to his disciples that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It is inevitable in our life that crises are going to come. And it's not a measure of our spiritual maturity whether we are in a crisis or not. The measure of our spiritual life is where we turn to in the midst of those crises. And that's what we're gonna ask of Ahaz, the king of Judah You see here the situation in verses one and two, these kings are coming. And notice in verse two, when the house of David, that's Judah, when the house of David was told that these two kings are coming against them, notice what it says, that the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the winds. In other words, they are incredibly afraid. They, are, they know they do not have the strength in themselves to meet the challenge of these two kings. And this has the potential of destroying the house of David forever. Which brings up a question. What about David's promise? What about, what about God's promise to David? Remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago. David was promised to have a son that would sit on the throne of Israel, that would reign over all eternity, that his kingdom will never fail. And yet here's a threat that is surely going to do that. And that's exactly what Isaiah is coming to tell him in verse three. Look at this invitation here that he gives him. He tells him there's some verbiage here, but, but Isaiah is essentially going to come to him and say, yes, this threat is coming, but you need to place your faith in Yahweh. 
They are not going to succeed. And really, if you want to look at uh, verse 7, he says, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, it shall not happen. These kings are not going to destroy my people, Judah. And God tells him he's not going to allow these two nations to do anything to Israel, to Judah, excuse me. In fact, verse 9, if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to mark this verse toward the end. Because this is really the key to the entire section. Not just this sermon, but really the first half of Isaiah. He says here in verse nine at the end, he says, if you are not firm in your faith, then you will not be firm at all. And I love the way the NIV translates that. I think it really captures this. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. I think that's a great way of capturing what Isaiah is saying here. Just like Christ says, we are all gonna face crises in life. And I think sometimes we're tempted to think that because we're facing a crisis that means that there's something wrong with our faith, that, that God is getting us. But whether we do or not, beloved, is not a measure of our spiritual maturity. As I said, the primary call here is that in the midst of a crisis, are we going to stand in our faith or are we going to put our faith in something else to bring us relief? That's the question. That's what Ahaz is being faced with here. Do I trust Yahweh or do I put my trust in something else? And we're gonna see exactly what he does in verses 10 through 16, this call to faith that, that Isaiah gives to him. Notice the call to faith. I can just imagine this, every crisis, uh, every crisis we see this, but I can just imagine Isaiah is telling him, listen, Yahweh has said, it will not stand. Just put your faith in Yahweh. And then he just kind of stands and waits. Because, you know, usually at this point, when someone's receiving a word from God in the Old Testament, what do they ask for? They ask for a sign, right? Ahaz, silence. And Isaiah's like, okay, you know what happens next. Come on, ask it. Go away. Come on. And Ahaz, silence. And so Isaiah tells him in verse 11, again, Yahweh says to Ahaz, ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as the grave or let it be as high as heaven but notice how the king rejects it here in verse 12. Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. You know, most of your commentators here says that Ahaz is trying to kind of feign, kind of fake being spiritual. Oh no, I could never put God to the test. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I don't think he's pretending at all. He's essentially saying, Isaiah, I don't care. I don't care what Yahweh says. I have no interest in even putting him to the test. I don't care. And so in that, in reaction to that rejection of God, in reaction to that unbelief, Isaiah 
gives this prediction in verse 14. He says, therefore, the Lord himself, and that is Lord, that's, that is Adonai, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curdled milk and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So why is he giving this? I want you to understand that the Emmanuel prophecy is not being given in response to Judah's faith, but it is actually being given in response to their unbelief. They have rejected God. The house of David is in a full, at least at this point, as represented by Ahaz, they are in a full rejection of God. In fact, what we know from history is that Ahaz is actually going to go to the king of Assyria and he's going to submit himself and Judah to Assyria and he's gonna to go to them for help instead of trusting in Yahweh, the God of Judah. He doesn't care about Yahweh. He doesn't care about the word of the Lord. The Lord's sign, a virgin will be pregnant, give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And notice, Verses 15 and 16 is key here to understanding this sign. It says, he shall eat curds and honey by the time he matures. And by the time this boy comes, the, king you, the kings you dread are gonna be gone. They're gonna be out. This sounds like a good thing, right? This sounds like a good sign. Even in response to Ahaz's unbelief, this sounds like a sign of deliverance, but it's not. It's not. What's the significance of curdled milk and honey? Why is it saying that he's gonna eat curds and honey? Why is he saying that? Because that's the food of poverty. That's what poor people eat in this time. In fact, if you go down to verses 21 and 23, he says, in that day, every man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk, everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In other words, they're eating curds and honey because their land has been decimated. Because there's no more greenery. It says in verse 20, 23, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels will become briars and thorns. You know, one of the questions that's asked is, how can Jesus' birth 700 years after the fact be a sign to Ahaz? Beloved, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The question is, when the promised son of David is born, he will be born in a land of Judah that has been desolated. He will be born into a land of Israel that has been decimated that is poor. And instead of being born in the house of a king, he will be born in, in a stable and all he will have to eat is the food of poverty. He will grow up poor. He will grow up with no stately appearance or anything that we should behold as glorious. Do you see that? So the question is not, 
how will Emmanuel be born? The question is, what will he be born into? And why is that? Because instead of trusting God in this crisis, Ahaz turns to Assyria. He turns to a worldly kingdom. He turns to the very enemies of God. He says, I am not going to trust Yahweh. I am going to put my trust into the strength of men. And I'm going to depend on this godless kingdom to save me. And that's what we're gonna see, the consequences of unbelief following the sign in verses 17 of chapter seven all the way through chapter eight, verse 22. The consequences of those unbelief. You see in verse 17, it says, Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Who's coming? The king of Assyria. In other words, what are the consequences here? Four times in Isaiah, four times, he repeats over and over again, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And it shows that in verses 18 and 19, that Assyria is gonna cover every inch of the land. They are gonna completely bring shame upon Judah in verse 20, shaving off the beard, uh, talking about they're gonna come to the very head of the nation, the very city of Jerusalem itself, and they're gonna shave the beard. In other words, they're gonna bring the country to absolute shame. And in that day, everyone who is left behind will have nothing to eat but curdled milk and honey. And in that day, the land in verses 23 through 25 will be completely desolate because of Ahaz's unbelief. He thought Assyria was going to save him. He thought Assyria was going to bring him protection. And yet the very thing that he trusted in besides Yahweh, the very thing that he thought was gonna bring him peace and security is gonna turn around and betray him and is going to desolate his people. And the house of David will be broken because of their unbelief. The very one that we put our faith in other than Jesus Christ, beloved, is the very one's that rise up and betray us. They become our false gods and they enslave us. And what's the confirmation of this? And this is where it gets a little tricky, okay? So I want you to follow me here. But in chapter eight, Isaiah goes home. He has obviously has given this prophecy. He is, just imagine, just imagine the scenario. He is distressed. He is upset about Judah's future. You can imagine he's pretty upset. And so the Lord comforts Isaiah. And he says in verses one and two, the Lord tells him to write a sign on his property. And it says, belongs to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which means um, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. What's the significance of this? Two witnesses are come and come and they are called to confirm this. Think of it as kind of a deed of, prof- of property. In other words, Isaiah is putting a sign on his house that says this house belongs to this name. 
And what that means is, is that one day that property is gonna come back to his family. And in verse three, what's the sign of that? In verse three, I went in to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said to me, call his name, the, the name that I wanted to name Colton when he was born, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I would have called him Baz for short. But Malar, Malal Shalal Hashbaz. For the boy, for, and watch this. For before the boy knows how to cry, my mother and my father, in other words, before the boy can speak, mommy and daddy, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, by the time Isaiah's own son is born, this prophecy is going to be in effect. It's going to be working itself out. Now, most people today believe that Malar Shalal Hashbaz is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. And I'll be honest with you, when I first came to Calvary, I actually believed that you had a dual fulfillment where you have a son that is born at first to the son of Isaiah, and then you have the ultimate son that is born later. But I want you to notice, did you notice the two different time references that are given here? That before Emmanuel is able to eat uh, curdled milk and honey, before that time, these two kings are gonna be gone. Well, there's nothing there that says that it has to be close. There's nothing there that says, long before Jesus is born, these two nations are, these two kings are long gone. 700 years, in fact. It's nothing that says it has to be a near fulfillment. Nothing says that at all. But when this child is born, when Isaiah's son is born, now before this son is able to say mommy and daddy, this sign, these two kings Everything they have is going to be taken away to Assyria, and then Assyria is going to turn its sights on Judah. And again, you go on. The bigger threat is coming. God is going to unleash because Judah refused to drink the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over God's victory over these two kings. Instead, the bigger threat is coming. You would not drink from the gentle spring of Shiloh. Therefore, the Euphrates River is being unleashed on you. The king of Assyria is coming. In fact, he even taunts them in verse nine. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor. Get ready for war and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word and it will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. By the way, that's the same word, Emmanuel. But the irony here is that because of their unbelief, when God is with Judah at this time, God is going to be with them in judgment. He is going to be with them and Assyria is going to cover the land and Judah will be decimated. This is pretty serious. 
serious judgment coming because of Judah's unbelief. He thought it was better to trust in Assyria instead of the God of Israel. He thought Assyria was a greater rescue than Yahweh. And because of that, the, Lord, the land is going to pay dearly for his unbelief. And by the time you get to verse eight, chapter eight, the last few verses, look at this with me. They being Assyria, they will pass through the land, excuse me, they being the people, they will pass through their land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Judah, the land is going to be thrust into complete and total darkness. And instead of seeking God, they're gonna seek necromancers and witchcraft and total spiritual darkness. Kind of reminds you of our land today, doesn't it? This world offers so many, let me just stop right here for a moment, beloved. This world offers so many false promises of salvation. This strength of man, this mighty kingdom, this mighty company that will never go away. It promises if you will only do this or that, you'll be happy, you'll be safe, you'll be secure, you'll find your purpose, you'll find your meaning, you'll find satisfaction. But oh, beloved, how often these things disappoint. How often these things come back and betray us. As an example, do you remember when social media first came out? Do you remember Facebook's original mission statement? I actually looked it up. The original mission statement when Facebook was founded in 2004, it was to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. And so many people bought into that promise. It was such a good promise. Made Mark Zuckerberg one of the richest people on earth. But what has it brought? Severe disunity. It has incited violent insurrections. It's the number one source of lies and chaos. But never mind what it's doing to our country. Never mind the invasion of privacy. Never mind all of that stuff. Let's look at what it's doing to our children. What's it doing to our children? Severe isolation and loneliness in our elderly and our children. Rates of, of reporting of depression and loneliness have skyrocketed, especially during COVID. Rates of teen depression, anxiety, and even suicide have risen severely in the last 15 years. And we greatly suspect that social media is playing a big role in that. In fact, I actually, in researching this sermon, I, I actually came across this article on the Wall Street Journal just published this year. It says Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teen girls. Their own company documents prove it. Is that building community and bringing the world together? It was such a promise of such wonderful things, and yet what is it doing? It's tearing us apart. Now, I'm not saying don't get on Facebook. I'm not saying don't get on you. Know, but beloved, please use it wisely. And by the way, it's okay to unfriend people. 
It's okay. I'm, I'm far more concerned about your spiritual health and your emotional health and mental health than I am about whether or not you're considered couth on social media. It's okay to unfriend people. I do it all the time. And guess what? They can't say anything about it. You know why? Because I've unfriended them. I don't care. <laughs> so just please use it wisely. Please use it wisely. Something that was supposed to build community Instead, I think when all is said and done, when this nation has gone to pot, I think we're gonna look back and see that this was one of the leading causes for it. But that's just one example. So many other things we could point to. Trusting, bringing us the promise of fulfillment and happiness. And yet these are the very things that betray us. It turns us into slaves. It destroys our lives. Has it happened to you? Maybe you have found your life completely demolished of hope and living in despair. Maybe for you, you were hoping for an escape. You went to alcohol. You went to, you went to something that could just take your mind off of it. Maybe, maybe you were seeking pain relief in the, in, the, in the opioid that was prescribed. And maybe you're just trying to seek relief from that. And yet that very thing has turned around and betrayed you and has made you its slave. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe you placed your hope in a relationship or a marriage that was going to bring you happiness, only now it's crushing you. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a, uh, uh, you're having a child, the promise of having a child, and you put all your hope in that, and now that child has broken your heart. Whatever it is, Maybe you feel as though you're walking in nothing but gloom and anguish and darkness. And what's the answer? What's the answer? And that's what we find in chapter nine of Isaiah. That's what we find in a nation that is walking in gloom and anguish. We find in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, look at this wonderful verse that we always begin Advent with in our home. Isaiah 9, verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Beloved, this is the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the coming of Emmanuel when all of the consequences of Judah's disbelief has been worked out. Now in that time, in that rejection, in the midst of their darkness, a great light has come and it is the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he's going to bring to them salvation in verses one through five, the people who once walked in this darkness, this nation is going to be restored, not only restored, but multiplied. Their joy is gonna be increased. Their burden is gonna be destroyed. Every weapon formed against them is going to be demolished and used to fuel their energy. Ultimate salvation is coming. Why? Because of the Savior in verse six. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. Is this the same as God with us? Well, you tell me. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does that sound like Emmanuel to you? Beloved, Isaiah's son 
is not the fulfillment of Emmanuel. He is the certainty of the promise of Emmanuel. But the promise of Emmanuel comes to us in Jesus Christ. You don't need a dual fulfillment here. You don't need a historical fulfillment here. We have everything we need right here in Isaiah chapters seven, really through 12. We just went through chapter nine this morning because I didn't want to unload the entire haystack for, you know, you're welcome, Roy. So, (laughs) but you see how this prophecy is working itself out. And the Savior who comes, in verse seven, of the, un, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness and from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts is going to accomplish this. Beloved, I don't want a salvation that the king of Assyria can accomplish. I want the salvation that only the zeal of Yahweh can accomplish. I want the salvation that will be eternal. I want that satisfaction that will be everlasting. I want to be part of the kingdom that will never end. I want to be part of the people of God. I want to be part of the people of Jesus Christ. That's where I want to place my hope. And maybe you're here this morning and like Ahaz, you are suffering the consequences of placing your hope in something else. Maybe you're here this morning and you are suffering. You feel like you're walking through deep gloom. You feel like you're walking in darkness and you are wondering where is the light Beloved, the light is in a small baby that was born 2,000 years ago in a stable lying in a manger. And that very baby was the King of kings and Lord of lords who came to establish his kingdom forever. He came to die for your sins and he came to be resurrected to give you new life. And he is at the side of the Father right now offering himself to you as a rescue from your unbelief as a rescue from your sin and from his own wrath. That's the salvation I want. Don't put your hope in any other. Don't put your hope in a false savior. Don't put your hope in anything else but Jesus Christ, our Lord. He came and fulfilled this promise. And Matthew did not take it out of context. He did not use it improperly. Instead, he saw exactly what God was telling us, that a virgin will be with child and she will bring forth a son and he will be God with us. Do you have God with you this morning? Can you say that God is with you? If not, I wanna show you how you can. I wanna show you how you can be saved by knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. I don't have any musicians this morning, so I'm just gonna ask you to stand for a moment and I'm just gonna ask you to silently reflect. Let's just have a moment of silence, if you will. And I'm just gonna ask you, do you know that you know 
that God is with you? Do you know that you know that you are in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you know that if you were to die today, if one of those terrible storms that came weeks ago and demolished our neighbors, if one of those storms came and claimed your life, do you know where you would end up? Why are you waiting? You are not given tomorrow. You are not promised tomorrow. You only have today. And today is the day that God has given you to respond to salvation. He might give you tomorrow, but beloved, do not put your hope in that. Do not test the Lord your God. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today because that's all you have. If you're here this morning, I want you to come at the end of service. I want you to come and talk to me, talk to Brother Art, talk to Brother Roy. If you're a lady and you wanna speak to Miss Bobby, you wanna speak to Miss Vanita, there are several ladies in here who would love to share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Our Father, we come to you today and we thank you for the wonderful gift, the surety that you've given us, the certainty that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Lord, he came in the flesh so many years ago. He lived that perfect righteousness that we could never live on our own. And he died on the cross in order that his righteousness may be placed on us, qualifying us for you. And Lord, all of our sin could be placed on him so that we could have forgiveness in you. Or if there's one here this morning who does not know you as Savior, I pray they would not wait, but I pray they would come and only trust you. Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. 